Hello and welcome to NodeUp, and I'm live at the Node Foundation's Node Interactive in Austin, when the following two days after Node Interactive is the Collaborator Summit. And so we are in the second day of the Collaborator Summit, and I'm live with Miles Barnes today, who I'm going to do a one-on-one interview with. So I'm Rod Vag, I'm from NodeSource, I do Nodecore stuff, and Miles, how about you introduce yourself? Thanks for being on the show, and how about you introduce yourself, tell everyone who you are. Yeah, my, my absolute pleasure, Rod. So to introduce myself, obviously my name is Miles. You may know me on GitHub as the Alpha Nerd. I work for a small disruptive startup called IBM, primarily focused on Node Core. A lot of the work that I do is around LTS and the release process. Great. And Miles, I, w- I want to get to know you a little bit. So I've, I've had some interesting chats with you over the, over the time that I've known you, and uh, you've got a fascinating background. I don't know how much you're comfortable talking about it on, on a live recording, but let's, let's dive in. Tell us a bit about how you got into technology and programming in particular. Where, where, what was your journey as a, a youngster, or was, did that happen later in life? So growing up, I, I had like a few delves into programming, and then, like, I had taken some courses in high school. I did some, like, C stuff. I, I made a, an implementation of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in Pure C. I and mean, I printed that out in paper to hand it in. It was, like, 55 pages thick. And my teacher went around showing it to everyone off to, to show off how many lines of code I had written. Uh, like, 40 of the pages were just the questions. But I didn't really get super into it. I'd done some like action script and flash animations, but I took this one class in programming that was in Java, and it was, I was just miserable. I kind of decided that wasn't for me and went on and, and, and tried to pursue a career more in media. Went in and out of school a bunch, ended up returning to college around 23 or 24 to go back to do an undergrad in fine art. And I actually originally went to go study um, photography and cinematography. And I had dropped off my application. And as I was walking out, I ran into this other professor that I had had for a class when I was studying animation. You know, I've got a barrage of backgrounds. And he, he asked me what I was applying for. And I told him I applied for photography. And he mentioned, well, maybe you should look into this other program called Integrated Media. I know you're interested in media theory, which was another thing I had studied. Well, what's media theory? So media theory would be stuff like Marshall McLuhan, the study of, like, messaging and media. And, like, if you go into, like, a higher level, like, rhetoric, a lot to do with kind of, like, how we think about things, how we explain things, how we communicate how that is then involved in media itself, the idea of self and how self revolves around these media. Yeah, it's an interesting study. It's Um, it's like a communications thing. Yeah. So so there was a course that had that and other things? So I had taken a course with this professor when I was doing my animation degree on kind of art history and media theory and ran into him. You know, a lot of my things in life that have led me here have been super kismet. And I just happened to leave the building as he was walking by. And he was like, based on what you're interested in, I think you should look at this integrated media program. You could still take all the photography courses, but you also get to take all this media theory stuff. And they have electronic stuff and programming stuff. And I think that you'd enjoy it. And so I went home and I looked it up. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to try this thing out. And that same summer... Um, I started getting into electronic music after I saw some performances that really blew my mind and expectations of what I thought about electronic music. And so right around the same time that I started, I actually started learning how to solder and make electronics to build music controllers because I couldn't afford to buy them myself. And then also started learning how to program to like work with this open source music device called the Mono. And then while I was in school, I started building art installations using Arduinos and embedded Linux systems. So I actually started using Linux 
to build installation art and also like put my portfolio online. So I spun up like a Linux box to make like, God, why am I totally spacing on the blog? Um, WordPress. WordPress. So like, yeah, like I became like a lamp administration just to like have my own WordPress blog. So, so what, what was your portfolio? Were you, is it primarily music or what was it a mix? So it, it was like mixed interactive art. So like I had one piece that I did called Stringing It, which was um, a blown up version of a children's toy. So there's this optical illusion that if you spin a string really fast over flashing lights, it looks like a standing 3D wave. So I was like, I wonder what this will look like if it was six feet tall and 10, wi- 10 feet wide. <laughs> And so I, I built one of those and it was, you know, like uh, an Arduino. And then like I had, I was using something called Open Sound Control and a, web, a mobile app called TouchOSC. So you could actually like interact with it. So I was doing communication back and forth using serial communication. And actually how I got into Node was my thesis project. I did a um, art installation called The Black Box, which was this empty room with just a speaker in the middle of the room. And the only thing you could see was a single power cord. And in the wall, we had embedded a connect. And so I was using this library called OS Skeleton, which wrapped all of the connect code and C++ stuff and just would fire out these open sound control messages. And OSC is a communication standard built on top of UDP. It's kind of, you could think of it as a SQL to MIDI. But because it runs on a networking protocol, you can communicate locally or communicate over a network. And so inside of the speaker, I had another like little uh, Linux box running with a beagle board that was listening for these messages. And I was using Node to broker the messages between the Connect and the synthesis software that I had running in there. And then I also had a little app on my phone, which was a web app, that I was then using to communicate over Socket.io back to the server. And then like allowing you to like actually switch what installation was running in the space. And the whole thing was about building out an installation that had all these different like, layers of abstraction so that people coming into the space could choose how they wanted to interact and by peeling back the layers of abstraction, create their own experiences. So if you were really into synthesis, you could dig all the way into the synthesis layer and just make a new synthesis module, pop that in, and then you would change the synthesizers you were playing with. If you're interested into the human interaction, I had like a whole library I built in Max MSP that you could use for like taking all the skeletal data and using that to control the synthesizers. Okay, so, so for you, Node and technology in general was a, was a tool to achieve the art that you were trying to achieve. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors. Relying on users to report them, digging through log files trying to debug issues, or a million alerts flooding your inbox ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insights, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster, with a lot less noise. It's easy to install. You can start tracking production errors and deployment in a few minutes. Rollbar works with all major languages and frameworks. Ruby, Python, JavaScript, PHP, and of course, Node. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow, send alerts to Slack or HipChat, Create new issues in Jira or Trello and link your GitHub, Bitbucket, or GitLab repos. We have a special offer for NodeUp listeners. Go to rollbar.com slash NodeUp. Sign up and get the bootstrap plan free for 90 days. Loved by developers at awesome companies like Heroku, Twilio, Kayak, Zendesk, Twitch, and more. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to rollbar.com slash NodeUp. I mean, I know you still do music and art now, but you seem to, I mean, with your work, you spend most of your time doing technology and Node. Mm -hmm. At what point did that flip? 
um, the, the, the priority there? Or has it flipped? Or maybe are you just doing it because you want a job? I mean, well, I, I think that there is a part of it that has to do with what I'm paid to do. <laughs> That, that puts right. my time into it. But I, I actually don't think it was ever too different. And if you looked at like kind of the thesis, my original thesis was about empowering individuals through technology. And so like around the same time, I had a lot of thoughts around the purpose of work and finding meaning in what you're doing. And I'll preface this by saying that I have the most respect ever for people who are product focused. I think product is awesome. I read books about product. I'm interested in product. And at the end of the day, you know, Products are generally how we make money, and it's kind of necessary. But at the same time, if you think about like kind of a tree of influence, the products are kind of the leaf nodes, right? The product is this thing that's created with all this technology that then enables people to do stuff. Um, but when we think about like actually enabling creation, it's the leaf nodes. So when you create the technology that allows people to make products, and we can think about something, you know, like Express as an example of that. When you create this technology that allows people to make products, your influence is even greater. And when you move all the way to like the platform level of something like Node, when you make a platform that people can use to make the tools that people can then use to make products, this influence level is like massive. And so, so to me, the whole time I was going through all this stuff with art and with music and technology, I was still almost all the tools and everything I was using were all open source. And I was contributing back to these platforms and tools that I was using to make the, the work that I was doing. And, and that was a huge drive for me. I had no need to ever do that. This was like part of the passion of why I was doing it. And the idea of an open web, the idea of non-proprietary tools, of, of things that empower people to make things and do not lock them down and dictate to them how they can use them, was kind of a core driving concept to me. So, so to me, like, getting to where I am now is just kind of like a logical conclusion. Or maybe I shouldn't say conclusion because I, I, I see this path, you know, going even further when you start thinking about, like, standards or foundations or, you know, I want to see, like, how far this can go as far as influence is concerned. But I'm very, very interested in, like, how do you have the most effect with and I don't want to say minimal because that maybe doesn't sound the best, but it's like, you know, that's kind of an engineering problem in general. It's like, how do we amplify the effect of, of minimal change? And, and that's something that really drives me. That's fascinating. So, so you eventually found work in with doing Node. Yes. And you, you've been heavily involved in Silicon Valley culture even because um, you moved to San Fran, I think. Yeah. And to tell us about your startup journey. <laughs> So I'll say as much as I can without, without getting in trouble. So I went to grad school in the Bay Area. I, I generally like I'm, I generally tend to be like really vague about where I went to school because I, I mean, for the sake of clarity, I studied at Stanford. Um, but I found often when you kind of like open with that, it comes up kind of like bougie, and that's not my intent. And I studied like music technology in this really weird kind of like place where they sequester all the weirdos. So it's like. You know, I, I wasn't a CS grad there, but I'm always like, yeah, I did grad school in California. And then they'll be like, oh, where? I'm like, you know, Northern California. Oh, where? Karma, the Center for Computer Research and Music and Acoustics. And then if they keep asking, eventually I'll get to it. <laughs> but, you know, like Stanford is heavily embedded in Silicon Valley culture. And there's kind of like a clear path. You know, you graduate from Stanford, you either start a company or go work somewhere. And... I was at the time that I was there, I was studying music technology. I was doing a lot of work with open technology for creating music, a lot of domain specific languages and stuff like that. Um, but I was also still doing a lot of work with uh, web technologies. And that was actually the way that I got into Node as well. Like, in, like when I say getting like more into the actual implementation details and like 
like starting to like hit edge cases, was in build tools. I, I was a fairly early adopter of Grunt and was working at... It's a pretty, pretty common story for a lot of people getting into Node through the build tools route. Yeah. And, and so I had worked at, at a startup uh, one summer called DJZ, which was a startup for DJ. It was like a blog, a lifestyle blog for EDM fans. And they also had like an app for DJing. They, they've since pivoted into something completely different. And uh, that did not... Tr- that did not prove to be very profitable, but it was a fun place to work at the time. And I helped them. They had this, like, thick Ruby stack where they had an API that was Ruby and then, like, a front-end Angular app that was, like, embedded in it. And if you wanted to get, if you wanted to get like, a designer in to change some CSS, they needed to get, like, Postgres, MySQL, and, like, a Ruby build chain working on their system. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I broke out their whole front-end and using a grunt stack so that it was just NPM install to get running. And that, like took the onboarding time from three days to 30 minutes, (laughs) which was pretty great. But so I started getting really interested in static site building and uh, this idea of using node tooling to kind of simplify the process of websites that I saw were getting really overcomplicated with like front-end JavaScript. And so before I graduated, I went and met up with the CS teacher that I had studied with, asked about you know, what, what kind of jobs could you suggest for me? I'm interested in getting into the market and finding something at a startup and kind of showed him the stuff I was working on. He was like, you know, Miles, you're an interesting person um, because a lot, of the, a lot of the people, especially in CS who are coming through Stanford, are very interested in performance and in optimizations and um, all the stuff that's really, uh, I'll say, a, a scare quote, hand-wavy exciting in programming, at least to them. And to me, I, I've never actually been really interested in that. I, I'm way more interested in the usability problems and the problems of, like, how do you consume code? How do people share code? How, how do we do things in a way that makes it usable? I don't know. That's just the way my brain works and the things that I'm interested is that, in. Is that about the, the human and computer interaction border? Is that, the, is that what it is that drives you? I think that's a huge part of it. It's, like, also... I think we often think about optimization as an optimization in like cycles of how long the, the code runs. And I'm really interested in the optimization of time and like how long it takes the humans to make effective change in code. Right, yeah. So he was saying, you know, you're in this interesting place where like a lot of people are not necessarily interested in solving this problem, at least coming out of the school. And he, he forwarded me to this company, uh, Famous Industries, who was hiring someone to focus on build tooling. And Famous had this front-end JavaScript framework. They were promoting that they were going to essentially disrupt and own the front-end was kind of their mission. That, like, essentially there were all these different layers of the stack that were owned. They were using CSS 3D matrix transforms to manipulate DOM and allow for 3D interactions, which were extremely unique. And so what they were trying to do is create a platform that you could use to make, you know, get 80 or 90% of the way there for like a, no, a native experience using solely web technology. Because still what we see even in most of these uh, frameworks that are built around web technology, they're, they're still kind of making documents. They're not necessarily making interactive web experiences. And when you get to the ones that are making like more interactive things, you're all the way to like 3, 3JS and like GL-based stuff, which is maybe even getting a little bit more complicated than what the average individual is getting into. So they were thinking like, how do we do like internal scroll or how do we have scroll that has physics associated with it? Or how do we like recreate spotlight? And it was just like, how do we recreate these native experiences solely out of web technology and do it all in an open way? And that was a really interesting mission to me, seeing as how at that time native was just swallowing web. 
I think it's kind of flipped a little bit in, in the last little bit. You know, for me, I want like I want the web to win, and that was actually one of like Steve Newcomb, the CEO's primary focus was the web should win. So I was hired as a tooling engineer, and I started working a lot with Node at that time, building custom build tooling. It started with Grunt and then quickly moved to just pure NPM scripts and writing a lot of our own custom tooling. I I created a bit of a a design that was inspired heavily by Substack of small Unix utility styled things where like any one thing that we need to do, we should be able to make a Node module that's small, that does that one particular task very well, is testable in its own way. We include that as a module and create kind of like a a build pipeline. Was that, was that open source work? Yes. And so we created a whole bunch of different tools around our, our framework. And some of them were like as simple as at one point our framework was all completely built in require. And we wanted everything to go through Browserify. So we had like custom EST walkers that could like move between the two. And it, it, things were funky at times and things were cool at times. But it was, it was a lot of build tooling. It was a lot of early work on NPM first for front end work. And at that time, I was also talking with Isaac. I was in the Bay Area, so I would uh, I would see Forrest Norville at like all the events and like bother him to the point where he would like have to run away from me to hide. But really, um, I, you know, maybe I, I'm talking myself up a bit, but I really felt like at Famous we were really pushing the boundaries of what was possible for using NPM for front-end applications early on and finding a lot of the edge cases, especially around how Node handles modules and the the singletons with modules and how that wasn't exactly compatible with the patterns that were being used in front-end technology, especially some of the patterns that you saw uh, come in later with React, with these kind of like global rendering places where you would register entities and entity pools and some of these graphics programming bits. So we were coming up with some hacks early on to get around NPM too, but you know we had some really early conversations with them. We ended up doing some really cool stuff there, like we ended up throwing jQuery SF while I was there, which actually helped me get my job at IBM. And through a number of people who actually left the company around the same time, I, as like a mid-level engineer, ended up taking over the job of two VPs and was running the conference. I got paired with this amazing individual, Greg Bardo, who used to work over at TechCrunch, and he used to do all of the logistics for Disrupt. So I got paired with Greg, and Greg handled all the logistics and anything that had to do with money, because developers aren't good with that. And he handled all the logistics of the conference, and I was handed pretty much carte blanche ability to program it and decide all the talks and decide how we were going to set things up. It was really interesting because we ended up having no sponsors. So one of the things we got to do, because there was no sponsors, meant we had no booths. But then we had Boost. What we did is I, we ran something I called the Open Source Bazaar, where I made an open sign-up to open source projects and gave them free booths and had a whole booth set up downstairs where each booth was a different open source project. So jQuery was there, React was there, Ember was there, Lodash was there, like John David Dalton flew and had a booth. And like all the maintainers of all these projects were there. So you'd show up and walk around and all the maintainers of all these projects were there and had a chance to like, you know, meet all these young new developers who are using their products and have one-on-one. And like those kinds of things you could never do otherwise. And, um, you know, uh, Andy B. Smith from the jQuery Foundation, who's a coworker of mine at IBM, and I and Adam Sontag as well, all worked 
together really closely with like weekly meetings as we were building up to it. And when I told them all these ideas that I had, they were like, there's no way this will work. <laughs> Meanwhile, I knew that we'd just pay for it. So <laughs> it kind of it kind of like turned out, you know, we we sold like a thousand tickets. We had more than 800 people through the door the first day of the conference. And it was amazing. And it was like one of those things where like other than famous having like their logo on like the tiniest bit of one of the slides in between the intros and one keynote, it completely stayed out of the way of the marketing and messaging of the conference. And it was this like kind of really magical, like spirit of open source event that I don't know will ever happen again because like who else is going to just drop that kind of yeah, money yeah, to do it? Yeah, I mean, the, the effort that took to pull off this conference, even the known interactive 750 people attendees, the amount of effort and the amount of fundraising that to go on through sponsorship, it's kind of epic, but it sounds like... There was it, two of us running it. Two, yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> that's phenomenal. Did you, did, did, do you think Famous got anything back from that in terms of their fundraising? Did that help their fundraising at all? Well, I mean, soon afterwards, and you can see there's an article on TechCrunch about it, so this is definitely something I can talk about. Soon after that conference, we had a framework that we were working on that, that wasn't very well received. And through a number of other things that happened, there ended up being mass layoffs and a complete pivot to a new product. I, as well as a number of other people, were all laid off in a series of layoffs over about three weeks. And the company went from like 35 people down to eight and then eventually down to four. And that, and that was their pivot into CMS, I think? Yeah, there are, it's a, a CMS for micro apps for marketers now. Right, okay. And just, you know, makes obvious sense as a pivot. Great. But, um, but so what is interesting is they're using the famous technology that we were building for building this app. But this is actually an interesting thing. One of the things that was a real problem was the amount of labor and time that it took to manage an open source project. And it was something, um, you know, the leadership team there didn't necessarily come from open source blood. And it wasn't, they weren't prepared for it. And further from that, a lot of the people that we hired also didn't come from the open source world. So that ethos wasn't really there. And so, I mean, I think that the, the, the success of the platform is still separate from the success of the company because we're talking about success of a community here, not necessarily success of, like, where money comes from. But there were a lot of things that were just, you know, not necessarily going to work. But it was, it was an amazing experience, and it lined me up so that, you know, when I found out that I was actually leaving, I tweeted and said I was looking for something new, and Andy from the jQuery Foundation at IBM reached out and was like, hey, do you want to work on Node? Right, so uh, you know, I guess you were one of those, one of the lucky people that physically you were located in the right place for Node. There, there was a lot of, Node was really growing culturally at the time and you were managing to hang out with Isaac and, and you mentioned Forrest and other people. Did that really shape your love for Node? I mean, was it that cultural thing that... I loved Node we? before. Okay. Like, for me, it was, I describe it as time to wow. Minimum, minimum time to wow. Minimum time to wow. Node has a really quick time to wow. And, and the stories that I've heard from people are pretty amazing. You have individuals who are like non-technical c- CEOs trying to put together like a pitch for a company who are building the prototype for their, com- for their whole company in a weekend with Node. Name another platform that anyone's doing that with. It's just not happening. You know, as I was saying before, one of my major drivers is enabling people and empowering individuals to make stuff. That is like, you know, making things that help people make things is kind of what drives me. And that short time to wow is a litmus test to how successful something is at empowering people. Now, it may not be the most optimized tool or the best tool, but it just seems to, like, people just seem to grok it really quickly. Like, it may not be the most efficient thing, 
but are you always trying like does everything always need to be the most efficient isn't it like way better if people if it's efficient for people no and yeah uh, that's fascinating I, I always find that a fascinating topic because it's not like javascript is the perfect language javascript is full of quirks and a lot of it is really hard to understand and then asynchronous programming is really hard to grok but there's something about node that is really enjoyable and and a pleasure pleasure to use um and it also it, it does have that that, that that rapid turnaround of results as well, which does this you know there's the feedback loop for you and it gets the endorphins going. Mm-hmm. Um, but this yeah, node has got something special going on there that I find difficult to quantify, mm-hmm. um, but I feel it. Yeah, no, no, I agree. Like I mean, there was definitely like two or three years when I started programming where I had no idea what I was doing when I made a callback, but it works. So I just didn't really ask any questions, um, but. There, there's something there. There's definitely something about JavaScript that's oddly human. <laughs> I completely agree. I think that's the best way of saying it. No, I, I love JavaScript for its quirks, actually. That's one of the things I like about it, mm-hmm. for its imperfections. Okay, it's look. not too pedantic. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. And it'll, it'll bite you if you push it too hard. <laughs> okay, well, we might move on and hear from our, our sponsor, and then we'll uh, come back and, and hear more about what you're doing now. Sneak is a London and Israeli company building developer-focused security tools, primarily focused on securing open-source code. One in seven NPM packages carries a known vulnerability, and roughly 83% of Node.js shops are using vulnerable packages. Sneak checks your dependencies against their open-source vulnerability database, and then helps you find, fix, prevent, and respond to any vulnerabilities in your application. If you're using GitHub, the fix can be as simple as an automated pull request that Sneak submits with the necessary fixes. You can easily integrate Sneak into a CI system like Travis or Jenkins to make sure your application is monitored continuously. Open source projects are free to monitor, and there's also a free 14-day trial for your private code. Find out more at snyk.io node. Okay, Miles, you are working in IBM now doing Node, and you, you're involved heavily in the LTS work. In fact, you are probably the most significant part of the LTS work. Can you tell us a bit about what you're doing there and what you have been given as a role, but also what you have found yourself falling into in, in terms of you know, your preferences and, and where you want to be? Well, take a second to expand the acronym. LTS stands for Long-Term Support. Long-term support is something that you'll see in more like enterprise-ready solutions for code. Tends to not really be necessary when you have, you know, like some module that one person is working on. But when you have like large platforms that people are relying on as a key part of their infrastructure, it's important. Long-term support is the process of creating a support contract and release contract for previous versions of the software. So with Node, for example, we're currently supporting versions 4, version 6, and version 7. 7 is current, versions 4 and 6 are LTS. So what's happening is that as we continue to have uh, progress moving forward on version 7 and on master, we're selectively bringing commits and changes back to version 6 and back to version 4 so that they continue to move forward, continue to get more stable, continue to have better test suites, continue to speed up, while still not changing the base functionality of those versions. So if you're a company and you're putting an app into production and you're running on version 4, you're guaranteed 30 months of LTS support where you know that for the first 18 months during um, the active LTS that it's going to continue to get the uh, 
general performance and improvements that are happening upstream that are safe to move back. And then for 12 months during maintenance, you're guaranteed that any major regressions that are found or any major security problems are going to be patched. So you can generally expect that this app that's running in production continue, will continue to be able to run in production and not break. So like, you know, things that, things that can end up happening with like V4 that, you know, like in maintenance would be like if there's an update to a new version of Ubuntu or something that causes weird edge cases that we didn't have before, you know, that's something that we would pitch to, to fix for you so that you can continue running it. Or if we had an open SSL CVE, we're going to patch that so that you're not going to have a vulnerable system. This is really important for companies who are running things in production and don't have the time or resources to continue to support breaking changes if they need to get updates. So you'll see LTS systems, like Ubuntu has a really strong LTS program. I'm not sure. I think Python has an LTS program now. or uh, Definitely Ruby does. But, I mean... I think Python's LTS program is just to keep on supporting version 2, isn't it? <laughs> What's going on with Node now, and if you go to the LTS repo, github.com slash node.js slash LTS, we have a very explicit policy, um, both on what releases will be LTS, how long they'll be LTS, and the process as to how we decide what commits will actually be backported. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing for LTS is actually the process of auditing our whole backlog of everything that ends up landing into master and into a release and helping to gatekeep what lands into LTS and, and what doesn't. And for the most part, as far as I can recall, we've actually not really seen any major regressions that have been backported due to how rigorous the process is. So I, I think for a lot of people listening, I suspect that they have the perception that as the changes go into these LTS branches, that they're actually new things that are being developed on their branches. But the majority of those changes are really coming from the master branch, aren't they? And mm -hmm. very few are d done especially for the LTS branches. I would say not, like between 95 and 99% of the changes that are getting backported are just direct, like cherry-picked directly from, from master or release branch. Sometimes they involve shuffling some bits around. So like for example, between Node 4 and Node 6, a bunch of code in like the Node CC file got abstracted out so that it could be a little bit more modular. So, you know, if you try to backport anything that touches that, you just have to kind of like remove things around. But as far as like things that land directly on 4, it's very few and far between. So, example, yesterday I backported an update to V8 to allow Node 4 to compile on BSD 11. And this was something that like... The BSD project floated on, on their internal version of V8 to get V8 compiling on BSD 11 for the specific version of V8. And in, a version of that commit ended up upstream into V8, but only on the 5X series and never ended up in like 4.8, which is what's in Node 4. And so we ended up floating that patch. And that patch doesn't actually exist anywhere in like 6 and above because it's fixed in another way. We've had small changes that land in and are directly targeting. But most of the stuff that ends up directly targeting 4 are actually more like manual backports of things that actually still are living on Master or V7, but involve a little bit more care. So, I mean, that's actually a good thing that I can bring up about the backporting process. So, so generally, anything that's lived in a release for two weeks is non-controversial. Like a current release. In a current release. Like version 7 now. Yeah. So anything that's lived in a current release for at least two weeks and is non-controversial and lands cleanly just goes in. 
I've for the most part been the litmus test as to what is controversial or not. But generally, you know, anything that seems like it's potentially going to have a problem, we call out to the people who are originally involved in it or experts on that part of the code base to decide. And in the worst case scenario, escalate it to the LTS team to discuss in a meeting. Yeah, it's interesting when you watch the, um, if people are watching the repo, I mean, I, I don't blame people for not watching it because I think as Anna said yesterday, it's like 300 messages a day or something crazy. There's this process where Miles will show up um, into an issue and, and ask the original people or call out to a specific team like might, might be security or crypto and, and ask the question, is this, is this safe? Is this stable? What is, the, what is your assessment of the stability risk? All that sort of stuff. And so there's these multiple levels, isn't there, of um, if you decide and then if you don't, you go and do find the original author or the subject area experts Mm-hmm. And then go and sometimes we have an LTS working group meeting where we talk specifically about things. What yeah. kind of stuff do we, it goes to that level though? Any Semver minor change has to go to the working group. So we will not land a, okay, so I'm going to step back for a second. Most LTS programs will only do patches. Many projects will not backport Semver minors. Semver minors being, you know, any sort of new feature. What we found, though, is that, especially for Node, that can be way too rigid for what we want to do, especially with the number of dependencies that we have and stuff. There are a lot of things that are Semver minor that we can safely backport with a near or total zero chance of regression. So one example of those is we recently, we have an LTS, V4.7 is being our seed right now and should be coming out next week. One of the things that's landing there is a new flag to expose OpenSSL sim- symbols on Windows. Because as it exists right now, those symbols are not being exposed for native module authors, and there's all these hacks that exist in the ecosystem to get them, to get them out. It turns out that when we expose those, it does not break the hack that is currently out there, but what it allow people to do is to remove that hack from um, from their production code. There's another change that and, came... And that, that particular one has been in discussion for a long time, hasn't it? We've mm-hmm. been debating whether it's even worth doing that. So yeah. it's not just at a whim to do those kinds of things. No, I think we had two or three different meetings where we discussed it. There's another one that was discovered recently, which is technically Semver Minor, which was a TLS. It was exposing a new flag in TLS that allowed to stop a memory leak that was discovered by Fedor. PayPal discovered that a whole bunch of their machines... We're crashing three to six hundred times a day due to this like really really obscure memory leak. That may have been a patch actually. Now that I'm thinking about it, if there was another TLS thing where it was just like a flag on OpenSSL that we wanted to ex- to to expose. Well, the, actually, the memory leak one is interesting, isn't it? Because that was a case of something being fairly expedited to get to LTS. So, so even though it's it, we have technically gone through the, it's been in a release now for a little while. It's something that we want to get fast into LTS because we know there are users out there that are suffering mm-hmm. from using what we've got in production. But we actually still managed to properly follow the process. This was the interesting thing about the way that we we landed it is we landed it into V4 and V6 prior to the release coming out. But what we did is we cut V7.2 on the same day that we cut a V4 and V6 RC. And we ran those RCs for two weeks so that by the time the release actually comes out, it will have landed, it will have been in a release for two weeks. So, I mean, that's maybe cheating a little bit. But this is one of those things where, like, you know, we had member partners of our organization saying, we're seeing major problems in production with this. And with this thing floated, we're, like, uh, definitely seeing a fix. Yeah, and in this case, I think actually we've got people using the RC in production yeah. because they really need it. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's. I, I think 
the the evolution of of this process is interesting, and I think you've guided. The, like 90% of our current policy for how we do it. Is that all cur- currently documented, how we do this all, or do we still have to go through a process of, of turning current practice into... Like, for example, our bus factor is really low because we have Miles, <laughs> who does a lot of LTS, and if Miles was hit by a bus tomorrow... Is, um, it, is that a threat? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, let's, let's say it differently. Let's say somebody comes along and offers Miles a million dollars to do installation art and have nothing to do with Node. Um, and he says, yeah, I'm gone. We're at a little bit of risk, aren't we? So what, what do we have in place and what are we working on to ensure that this is stable into the future? Yeah, to, so the, these are some of the problems that I've been, I've been thinking about and trying to solve, and it's a hard one. If we step back and just think about the process, we have it documented in the LTS work, working group documentation what should and should not be backported. But a lot of those decisions have really been kind of at my whim, and I was, I was working with another IBM employee, Gibson, recently going through a lot of this, and I was going really quickly as I was backporting. He was kind of like, how do you just know which ones to do? And I ran some math, and I've like audited over 3,000 commits in the last year. And you just kind of get an intuition about it. Like, I can quickly look at, like, what a change is and, like, maybe not even have to look at the code. Just look at, like, who signed it off, what files is touching, and have a pretty good idea pretty quickly about, like, what is and is not going to be a problem. So we have it documented. A lot of that then becomes intuition. What we're in the process of documenting better is, like, the process of backporting itself, because that was not extremely well documented. We're in the midst of trying to put that into the contribution policy. So the idea there being like, hey, if I'm going to backport something or if I want something backported, what's the process for me to escalate it and say, hey, this should be backported? If something's not landing cleanly, what's the process of like actually like escalating it and sending a pull request? What metadata should be there? How should it be set up? Because part of it is the fact that we've, um, we've got where we are almost unintentionally by using like we've written tools and we you know this way we've used labels that have that have pretty much become institutionalized mm-hmm. like there is now a way to do it that involves these things that we did that were you know we thought that they might help but now you know that we've got particular labels that we've used we've got particular tools that we use to find and identify these things mm-hmm. so that kind of thing has become formal in that it's used all the time and yeah. you can actually pass that on so, so the challenge then becomes, so I think the documenting is one thing, and, and I think we're most of the way there on the documentation. The other part, and I mean, like, this is always the real challenge, is the implementation. So there's some challenges. Like, I mean, prior to V6 came, coming out, we had a lot of talks about how it wasn't going to scale, how we needed more people to help out. But it turned out, once I started actually doing these audits again, it's not twice as much time to audit two lines. I can actually, it maybe takes an extra 10% of the time to be auditing two lines instead of one. Because as I'm going through the backlog, our deltas have remained actually small enough that almost everything that's going on V6 is, is mostly a candidate for V4 as well. And when it's not a candidate, it's obvious really, really quickly if it's not. So the amount of time isn't huge. There, there is a backporting difference though, because there's things like those little changes, like you said, in Node.cc, but I think there's also error message changes that make it tricky. So the ease of backporting is different between them as well, isn't it? To an extent, but I mean, even then, actually, the number of things that have, like, the number of changes that come in that, like, need to be backported have not been that bad. So, like, for example, I'll use tests. I backport almost every test as long as the test keeps passing. 
you know, like we're improving our testing. If a test doesn't land cleanly on four, I kind of just put it as a don't land and don't like really put the effort into trying to like minimize that delta. And the idea of minimizing the delta so that when we have things that like definitely need to land, we're not going to be stuck. And that was actually um, one of the changes that we added into the LTS process early on that I think has guided it a lot. That like the LTS process is not only just about backporting all these things, it's actually about minimizing the delta. If we keep the delta minimized, it means that when there are major things that need to be backported, we, it will be easier to do so. I had a talk at Node Interactive, and one of the things that I was trying to talk, say about the LTS process, in the context of Node 010 and the fact that it's actually turning out to be really difficult to get everyone off into 010. It's, it's sticking around. I called it our Windows XP um, mm-hmm. because it's sticking around a lot more than we hoped. And one of the challenges there is simply be- the, the delta between 010 and version 4 is, is quite large. And that's to do with time and to do with the amount of activity that's going on in that thing. But then once you get onto version 4, the delta between 4, 5, 6, 7, and even as 8 is going to come up, they're actually quite small. And so there's a much smoother progression. I think that your work on LTS and the ease with which you can move things from master down to 6 and 4 shows that we, we've got this rhythm going now so that not only is the code base fairly stable, but the, the, the way Node works and the way you interact with Node as a user of Node is... is, mm-hmm. is the differences are actually really minimal. And I think part of, part of that has been being more liberal in our LTS process. And, you know, the potential risk in doing so has not shown itself to be a problem. We have not, you know, seen major regressions. We have not seen major changes in, in usability. And, and the things that come up that are, that are, like, you know, potential regression cases, like, and those generally tend to be, like, really massive performance refractors, we just decide not to backport them yeah. when they when they tend to be more error prone. So it ends up kind of, you know, we get into these interesting cases. But for the most part, it seems to have worked out pretty well. And a lot of the people that I talked to, it seemed like migrating to four, from four to six has been, for the most part, painless. Yeah, no, I, I get the same. I hear the same thing as well. Can you talk about the the We've got a fairly small group in, involved in LTS, even showing up to meetings and even expressing opinions on LTS. There's a fairly small group. Can you talk to why that is and, and what, you know, what the nature of that makeup is and why we're, you know, we're, we're small and we come from actually very few places? Mm-hmm. So, so there's a couple different things, and I think this is probably the same, the same issue with releases as well. There's a certain trust model that's necessary to be doing this kind of work. So, and this was part of the scalability issue that I was talking about before, too. You know, we have these staging branches that we're using to stage commits as we, as we go along. And there's a benefit to me being the primary person auditing. It allows me to have a trust of these staging branches when I'm doing releases to know everything that on the, that's on there has been audited. And it's kind of this weird, like, double work thing where it's like, even if we bring more people in to help us backport onto staging, if I need to then go and audit these staging branches again before doing the release... We've actually just created twice as much work. The interesting thing is, like, to, to be quite frank, the, the, the bulk of the work on LTS, even having expressing opinions, comes from two companies, comes from IBM and Notesource. And we, I don't even think we have people showing up who are not from large companies to help out, do we? We have had two people come up okay. recently, and you know what it was? It was the deprecation of 010. Right. So this is an interesting one. We had a date for 010, 
in one chart and we had set a date for 010 somewhere else. And we actually had this opinion that so many people weren't really paying attention that we just, yeah, we'll push it. And we didn't like actually actively update the table. We were just kind of a little bit laissez-faire about it. And then the date came and passed that was on the one chart. And all of a sudden we had some people come in who, who were, you know, fairly upset about the fact that we hadn't held true to this contract. They had had teams on site ready to go for this transition. Both of those individuals who actually were part of that discussion have now joined the working group. If they'll come to all the meetings, isn't sure yet, but they actually want to monitor all the issues and have come in and chimed in on a few things before. And that's because they are impacted by it downstream as... Their platform's built on Node. Yeah, so they've got platforms and their users, they have to tell their users that they're supported on various versions and then they need to make those guarantees to their users. So they want to know know that 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 chain of trust follows through. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that it could, like, the answer to your question about why it's only two companies, it could be, one, like, a couple things. I think that, like, one thing is is that, like, the actual workload is fairly balanced. It's not one of those things that needs 100 people on there to take care of. I also think it's been a process that has worked. Um, I think from, you know, day one, um, from when I think, like, James and, and you and a, people, a number of individuals from the IOJS project were talking about this, to when I joined IBM and was, you know, assigned to start putting time into this, because it's been such a small group with like-minded goals, we haven't really ever argued about anything. It's been mostly like someone has an idea, we present the idea, there may be a tweak to it where someone saw an edge that hadn't been thought about, and then we just move forward. I think, I think LTS has in a weird way been like the least controversial group of people on the project. We've been running smoothly, and the release team also has been running really smoothly. It's one of these things that just... It's like we're all just in lockstep on it and and get each other. And so because of that, I don't think that there's pain that's come downstream to people for the most part. And I think that this example of the other two people who stepped forward was a perfect example. The second there was actually some pain associated with the process, people stepped up saying, hey, there's some pain that we felt. Let's not make this happen. So I think that, you know, had our process broken stuff more? Had our process made things not work for people, we would have seen a lot more people step forward. As it is, I think because of how painless the process has been, you know, people are satisfied. Why would they go and just put time into something that's working? From my experience, my attitude towards LTS and my involvement in it is heavily informed by my interaction with our enterprise customers at at Node Source, you know, we hear their pain. We, in fact, we feel their pain because we support them, and so my the way I view LTS and its importance and its need for stability, all those things comes from that. Do you have that same connection at IBM where you feel the pain of IBM customers and that informs your work on LTS? Or do you are you a bit more detached from the the product and services side of IBM? I live in a really amazing bubble at IBM. <laughs> I'm a bubble boy. You know, over at IBM, I'm in open tech. Uh, the same team as James Snell, who's my mentor over there. OpenTech, as far as I know, is one of the only teams, if not the only groups at IBM, who doesn't report profit figures. We're completely non-profit driven, and all of the things in which we report... So it's a bit like being at Famous again. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> actually, but, but no, like, I mean, that actually was a huge thing. That was one of the things when I did jQuery SF. The reason why Steve had Greg handle everything with money is like, he was like, you work great when there's no money involved and we keep you pure. So right. you're not going to touch the money. It's kind of what I'm doing at IBM as well. Like 
I have some stuff where I work with other individuals like Michael Dawson, who's on the platforms team and does work on supporting uh, different specific architectures or people from Strongloop or I may like communicate with different product teams to help unblock them or help them contribute is actually a huge one. My actual end goal is not, you know, as far as I know, being driven by particular anything profitable. In fact, like, I have very little direction that's given to me. Like, a lot of my work in LTS, like, I was told to kind of look at LTS and look at smoke testing. We haven't talked about Canary in the gold mine too much. But a lot of, like, that was actually just kind of my own interest in this process and things that I'm interested in and things that I, I think, you know, I have a talent for just kind of drove me in that direction. And it just kind of turned out that as I did this, I started getting more and more responsibility in the project. And as I got more responsibility in the project, I was, you know, a more visible contributor to the project. And as that happened, like, that was kind of more what my team was interested in. They're interested in, like, you know, people knowing that IBM are working in Node and care about Node and are investing in Node. So, so to, you know, my report chain, like, just the stuff that I was naturally doing kind of, you know, serve the purpose. It just so happened it's also something that serves our enterprise clients, and that's great. And that probably also helps. Um, but for myself and my own drive, you know, like I've been at IBM for 13 months. Prior to that, I worked at a startup. Prior to that, I was a student artist for a minute. You know, like supporting enterprise and enterprise clients, like I don't even know that I've sat in a room and had a real conversation with these people aside from my coworkers. But I care about our users. I, I care right, about the, right. the community of Node. And, you know, doing this research and looking at LTS, we've even had discussions where I maybe push LTS a little bit too hard. <laughs> well, no, the, no, this, actually, this is interesting because I think I've been framing here in just in this conversation that LTS has got an enterprise bent to it, but it doesn't really, does it? And I know, I know you've been doing lots of talks about it and node releases, and, and you've got a little bit more of a, than me anyway, a little bit more of an idea that LTS is what you should be using. Current is a, is, is a bit more unstable. But so I think... What what it seems to me is that you see LTS as the natural user to- choice for, yeah. for Node. So, I mean, one of the things that I experienced as a lot of pain working at a startup, and this is like an interesting alternate way to think about it. At a startup, you only have so many resources. You only have so much time to work on things. And, I mean, if you're going after funding rounds, if you're going after, like, just getting a product out the door... You don't have time for all of a sudden on a random Wednesday or Tuesday when a release comes out that all of a sudden your whole stack isn't working anymore. Now, I mean, albeit you have the choice to upgrade or not, and so, like, you don't have to. And this is generally a pain that's felt a lot more in the NPM ecosystem as things move forward in ways that are unexpected. But that aside, it's like you don't have time for some, like, really weird regression that isn't known like peeking its head because you're you're staying on the latest version because I you know my gut would tell me that if you're running on seven you're probably running on the latest seven because that's kind of the profile there why would you be running on like a random version of seven if you're cutting edge you're cutting edge so to me I don't think that like these businesses have the time to invest in finding like a random thing that may break that was unexpected I think running on LTS is kind of the responsible thing to do there because you know Maybe you don't get to use the latest and greatest features, but you get to know that things aren't going to be moving as quickly. Um, I think we saw a similar thing with, recently with Node School and Node School switching its advice to you should just use the LTS version. Download mm-hmm. LTS and run that because as 
in an environment where you don't want to have to be dealing with some random regression like we've had with Windows key presses up and down in the workshop and menus. So mm-hmm. just, just give people what you know works and then move on beyond the core technology because that's really, that's not what you're focusing on. You're focusing on building, building mm-hmm. value on top of it. Yeah, totally. And I mean, with that being said, I think it's really important that people are running on current. We need to stress test this thing and we need to figure out what's going on with it so that we can fix any regressions that are in there before we, we move forward. So, like, obviously there's a need for people to be running on it. And whether that may be, like, you know, a small internal utility or, like, you know, a personal project or, or what it may be, like, even your production something running on it, it's not that you, you shouldn't by any means. But I think that, you know, and maybe this is why I've been a good fit at IBM, I, I'm, I'm a little bit risk-adverse, despite the fact I worked at a startup. I tend to, for myself, like to minimize the risk that's going to drive me off the course that I'm trying to move towards. Now, I want to have, like, all the great features and all that, but I'm not willing to introduce unnecessary risk for being able to do star-star for exponents, for example. Or, you know, I'm not willing, like, when you really break down what the difference is between 6 and 7, as far as, like, the extra features, the benefit there doesn't outweigh the risk. Now, a good example would have been with 6 and 4, when 6 was still current, before 4 was released, and we updated 6 to 5.1, and it had better ES6 coverage, faster ES6 features, and the Inspect API... Now you're at a point where I can maybe say, you know, I can actually, like, justify that risk for the features. And also that was something that was going to end up LTS anyway. So it's like you're going to, to get moved into the support. You know, I don't think there's any really hard and fast rules. I just kind of tend to trust my gut on it. But this is the same gut I trust for what gets backported. So I think it's, like, somewhat reasonable to trust it. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, no, great. And I think we, we've seen a similar profile of... Um, something I found fascinating, actually, and speaks to the maturity of Node or the maturing of Node as an ecosystem, is watching some of the more active Node developers out there in the NPM ecosystem, the kind of people that are prolific with their module writing, the kind of people that are setting trends and patterns for how we do Node, you know, those, those thought leaders out there, <laughs> getting frustrated at us for some of the, the policies or at least the way that Node is moving because they don't want to have to care about core anymore. They want to build stuff on top of core. And so even the profile of users of Node Core, the way they want it to be is changing over time. So that stability is much more important to a wider group of people. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know if we want to talk to particulars there, but I think really it's <laughs> that, that that comment is about Node Zero Ten, the difference between ten and four, and and the difficulty getting off ten, or the difference between six and seven, six and seven. Oh, that, that, yeah, that too. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah no I think I think that this is an interesting question. One one of the things that I think is the, is the biggest challenge for core in this is that the language is moving forward and we don't have any control over that. Um, well maybe that's not the best way to put it. We have some control because we have people who are now showing up at the TSC, TS, TC39 regularly and are taking part in that conversation. But we are one of many stakeholders in that. We can't be stagnant. That's like the real problem. It's like. I'll use promises as an example, and this is one that, like, as more and more of the language moves forward, building more and more, like, core parts of the language out of promises, we're going to have to adapt or we're going to have a real problem. Now, I know this is something that we're, we're still figuring out what it means, but I mean, so much of Node right down to, like, you know, how we're handling the event loop is like tied to callbacks and like as far as I know right now and please correct me if I'm misinforming the listeners but like 
being able to do like proper core dumps or being able to like properly profile node, all of a sudden when you start introducing all these promises, you, you, you lose the ability to do it in the way that we're trying to. And a lot of the async wrap work, for example, that Trevor's been doing to allow, you know, like APMs to profile node better. I don't think any of that work is really supporting promises right now. No, no, promises is turning out to be a technical minefield for us, but we're working through it. So we, we think we can see solutions, but I think back to your point that a lot of the work in core, and if you, if you really do an analysis of the things that have changed for users of Node over the last three years, say, the vast majority of those things have been driven in some way by V8, whether it's language features or V8, the way it changes itself. So mm-hmm. to your point, you know, we, we can't sit still because we can't just sit on a five-year-old version of V8. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's like it, it, maybe there's like some irony to it, but like some of the original things that stagnated the project are the exact reasons why we need to move forward now. And so, like, it's kind of what we fought for, and now we have to sleep in that bed. It, it's, it's challenging. I think the biggest thing that we, we do need to work on, though, and I know that we are, is, like, the policies behind how we make these changes, the policies behind how we inform the users of Node, and, and how to make these things less surprising and, and to be clear about our communication. And these are things you just learn. I mean, I, I think people forget that the foundation's been running for how long? Yeah, it's been, it's not been much more than a year, or has it been a year? I think it's been a little little over over a year year for the foundation, but Node 4 was cut in, what, August? Yeah, yeah, not long ago. uh, Of 2015. So, I mean, all of the work that we're talking about right now in our LTS policy, this has all happened in the last year. All of our release process stuff that we have now, this has all happened in the last year. We're, we're still figuring this stuff out. And, and I don't say that to like make people uncomfortable and not... I don't want people to feel like we're just kind of winging it, because that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that like developing a strong and reliable process is an iterative process. There are things... We have to make decisions in order to run forward, but we are continuously willing to reevaluate those decisions when we find out that they're not working. And I think that's one of the biggest things that, that we can maybe communicate better to our community is like, if there are things that aren't working for you, it's, we don't need to fight. It's like, come and communicate with us and we're willing to work with you to find a solution forward. And I, I think, you know, some of the things that have been happening more recently are a really great example of that. And I think, I think that that communication is happening but, but it's hard. It's hard when people are really passionate about something. It's hard when people have invested a lot of time into something, when they feel like the rug is being pulled out under them. It's hard to remain calm. It's hard to, like, keep trust when you feel like people are not, don't have your best interest in mind. Right. Well, and it's becoming increasingly hard for us to manage the product that has such a massive ecosystem around it in terms of, you know, the open source ecosystem. But the user base is just phenomenally big. And we have to balance so many interests. And, and we spend a lot of our time having discussions, making decisions that are all about balancing those interests. It's, it's the curse of small core, right? It's kind of like so one of the most beautiful parts of Node is how little decisions we've made. But most of the decisions we have to make are because of how little decisions we've made. By putting so much of, of the functionality of our platform out into kind of the ethos, it means that any disruption that we make in our small core is, 
extremely distributed across that. DigitalOcean is the best place to get your application off the ground quickly and the easiest to scale when you find success. Start with the pre-configured Node.js one-click to get up and running in 55 seconds or build the exact infrastructure you need with root access to servers running 100% SSDs in state-of-the-art data centers around the world. DigitalOcean's easy-to-use API makes integrating tools like Jenkins and Terraform simple. DigitalOcean is the fastest-growing cloud infrastructure provider because it's built for developers and laser-focused on its mission to create simple and elegant solutions for developers and teams. DigitalOcean community articles provide guidance on a wide array of topics that help developers build better and faster infrastructure. Many of the Node.js packages for different Linux distros are actually built and tested on DigitalOcean VMs by Node.js and Nodesource. Get $10 credit when you sign up for a new account through the link do.co slash nodeup. As an added bonus, every time a new listener signs up, another randomly selected old listener gets a bonus $25 credit. So we it would be remiss of me to not go into Canary in the Goldmine because <laughs> I think you spend a lot of your time, in development time anyway, on this product. Can you tell us about what Canary in the Goldmine is, otherwise known as Sitcom? Sitcom? Mm-hmm. I see Sitcom, some people say Sitgem. Okay, there you go. So tell us about this product and what it is used for. Canary in the Goldmine was originally like a weekend project of James Snell prior to me joining IBM where he was playing around with the idea of how can we test our ecosystem against versions of Node to see if Node is breaking the ecosystem, which is exactly... An ecosystem in the sense of the open source NPM ecosystem. Exactly, the modules that exist in NPM. I believe that there was prior art of this actually in CPAN, where in Perl, you could test changes to your module against like all of the dependence of your module inside of CPAN. And actually, funny enough, when I was at Famous, myself and one of my colleagues spent quite a bit of time discussing almost exactly what Canary in the Goldmine is as a product for node modules, so that for NPM authors, you could actually see if your changes to your module would break the modules that depend on you. It's kind of like Greenkeeper inverted. Yeah, right, okay. So it's about um, your upstream consumers. Yeah, so Stefan Bonnerman and I have also had a handful of conversations about this. But Canary in the Goldmine in particular, you know, doesn't fit that use case. It's specifically what it will do is you can, you know, type in CITGM. If you can install it globally with NPM. Once you have it on your system, you can do CITGM and then type in the name of a module that's on, on NPM. It will go, it will grab the tarball of that module. It will um, put it, you know, into the temp directory. It will run npm install. It will run npm tests, and then it will report the results. That's kind of like the base features uh, of what Sitkim does. Expanded out, we also have a lookup table that we include with something like 72 of the top modules, and we just submitted a PR for eight more uh, binary modules. And what Sitkim all will do is it will actually run through all of those modules and then give you a report at the end of the results of all of them. It then has a number of different reporters. You can report in XML and tap and markdown in just, you know, like a, a command line reporter. And then that will allow you to, you know, embed that into different CI tools. So in our Node CI, in our, in our Travis, or no, Jenkins setup, you know, wrong butler. We wish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. In our Jenkins setup, what we have set up is a job that allows you to give any arbitrary commit or tag or you know pull request of node it will go and it will build that version of node it will install canary in the gold mine and then it will run sitkim all across all of those top modules and then it will it will 
a report in XML, output of all of the results of all of that, and then you know in CI we can dive into the results uh, of of the job. How is this used? So. This is used anytime we want to land a Semver major change. It's used anytime we want to land a change that's not Semver major, but like questionable of like what kind of breakages it may unexpectedly have. And it's also used anytime we're going to do a release. So this is really useful in that we're able to ensure that at the very least, through these top modules, if we're not breaking anything, Every single unit test in all of these modules acts as, you know, an extra unit test or integration test against Node itself. And we've had times where we found really interesting breakages that were unexpected, that actually were changes in core that had it been released would have, you know, caused uh, slight amounts of mayhem. Can you think of any examples? This was an interesting one. And I think this is an example of why we've actually decided to be much more strict with Canary in the gold mine. Prior to Node 6, we started seeing failures on Glob with the new real path implementation. We found a race condition that was introduced that didn't exist before, where essentially, because we were using a JavaScript implementation of real path, it was then calling to FS read. And eventually, if you had a cycle in your uh, symbolic links, FS read would throw for having too long of a path. And then that was in glob, the way glob was finding cycles in symlinks is it was actually calling it, calling real path over and over until it threw. And the error that it would throw would be the E path too long, whatever the system error is for, for too long of a path in, in FS read. And then like through some heuristics, it would know that it was a cycle because it was actually way faster to max out the path and actually have all sorts of different ifs and stuff. This is where cleverness catches up to us. So what ended up happening, and this was extremely interesting, is we started seeing throws, and those throws were only on specific platforms, where it was possible that RealPath2 would actually throw before FS RealPath and throw a different system error. And if it did that, then you would actually have an unexpected error code coming up in Glob's real path cycle find, and it would, it would have a false negative, and then it would give the wrong result. What was interesting is this was only happening on like Fedora and BSD, but it was not happening on like Ubuntu and OSX. It was like a per kernel, it was like kernel specific when this would happen based on like the implementation of libc. This was actually a lot of fun because I actually ended up all the way down into like limits.h of the BSD implementation of stuff and it would like, you know, pull back the curtains and see where the turtles go. We didn't take this error as seriously as we should have. What I ended up doing was working with James and trying to find a, a fix to glob and eventually we, we settled on a fix that essentially was just check for this extra error case. And if we have this extra error case, then report uh, report appropriately. And, and at first, it wasn't really clear. There was a lot of introspection and testing that we needed to do on specific systems to figure out what was going on. So what ended up happening is we submitted a pull request. Isaac was not exactly sure if that should land and gave some pushback. But what we decided to do, as we have done before in other projects, was essentially to put Glob on like the skip list or on a flaky list for six at that time and just move forward with the release. We were like, you know, we have a fix in place for it. We want that to land. We have some time while this is on current before it goes into LTS. So, you know, we're just going to move forward with the release and move forward with the release with this change. And it turned out that there was just a world of pain 
on FS RealPath. And I think Jeremiah gave a talk about some of this at NodeConfU, and you can find that online. But there was all sorts of weird stuff, and it literally went all the way down to, like, an old CVE for, for the, like, POSIX implementation of RealPath that, like, it was weird. There was, like, it was a rabbit hole. And we ended up actually reverting that change in the end. Hey, RealPath actually was illustrative for for many of us for a number of reasons and i and i use it now as a learning point as well because there was another bug that was caused by real path in npm that was related to timing because the new real path changes we introduced sped things up so dramatically it exposed an already existing race condition mm-hmm. that wasn't previously exposed and this and people may remember there was a, a time when people were saying you don't use node version 6 to do npm publish yeah you have to use node version 4 to do it and there was you know node version 6 is just all bad it turns out it was this race condition that was that was more much more likely to be exposed when you used node version 6 because the timing had changed yeah. and, and and we just we had no we had no idea about that. And, and this, this whole ecosystem testing, it, it, I think, it just reinforces the need for that because even, even things that are not technically bugs, just changes in performance pro- profile can really send things for a spin. Yeah, that, 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 <laughs> that race condition was a really interesting one. It was like a publish bug where the index.js wasn't included in the tarball. And I remember I had a, a conversation with Forrest way back where the person who it used to happen to the most was Substack. Because Substack was running this like really old Linux box, where it was slower. Yeah, <laughs> it was because we got hit by that once or twice. Um, oh, I did too. I remember. I, I just remember, you know, we we had a, there's a NAN release that actually. So the, this is sorry to digress here, but when I handed off NAN to its its current primary maintainer Benjamin Byhome, it was the first project that he had ever done an npm publish on. Like he, like he's a great guy, and it was like I said, okay, look. Do you want to take over NPM Publish for this? I, it's going getting beyond me. He said, "Yeah, great, he'll do it." His first ever NPM oh, Publish no. hit this bug, and it was like, and people were started complaining on the repo. The man's not working anymore, and so he, he like we were like we we didn't know, and so he he just did another publish. But now that I look back, it was exactly that bug yeah. that he hit on his, his first ever NPM Publish. Sounds <laughs> caused, traumatizing. Caused, it, well, it was because Nan is so heavily dependent upon him, yeah. and effectively he messed up. <laughs> Through this bug, I'm just sorry to digress there, but yeah. that that kind of thing shows the importance of, and and the seriousness with now with which we take even small tweaks within Node because again that ecosystem is so massive, people use it so so many different ways and rely on Node to be what it is now that even as we shift it slightly, we can have you know we can tune a tiny knob and mm-hmm. have a huge impact somewhere where we didn't even know existed. Yeah. And one of the biggest changes that we made after that, too, was just uh, modifying our Semver Major policy. Because one of the things that happened in 6 was that we had all of these Semver Major changes that were staged to be landed. But because we didn't want to break master for people who were running off of master, we didn't land them until like a week before the release. So there wasn't enough time where people were running them. I believe now, as the policy goes, we may still stage things, but a month before the release... We cut off any Semver major changes, and we have them all in master, and we're now doing both a beta and RC process before a Semver major change, a Semver major bump, to give people the time to test it out and try to find if there's any of these unexpected bugs. One of the interesting things that, that we haven't been able to figure out, and this is one of the things that the real path change really affected also, there were two different real path changes at the same time, and that also made it more disruptive, was Canary in the Goldmine is able to be used to test for breakages in like the unit test suite and in the modules themselves. But we currently have no way of testing people's workflow. 
So one of the things that I believe the real path implementation broke was like NPM link and the way NPM link worked when you were linking multiple projects together. So I've been thinking about this a bit and myself and Michael Dawson, another IBM employer, have tossed this back and forth as like, how are ways that we can like recreate the way in which people are using Node locally so we can create like a smoke test around that? I still have not really thought through exactly how that could work, but that's kind of the like you know, the next step, the next generation of Canary in the Goldmine would not just test like module test suites, but actually test like full working environments. And I think, you know, that could be really useful when we look at like alternate package managers, for example, because a lot of the breakages there aren't just going to be, is the, the module broken when you run NPM install? It's like, well, what happens to like this project and this workflow? Uh, just we'll try and wrap this section up, but... <laughs> When I so I gave my talk here at Node Interactive and I and I gave a whole lot of numbers about the health of the project, and and often when we're talking about project health, we're looking at number of contributors, we're looking at number of commits, and these things are, you know, just increasing year after year. They're going up and up. You know, really fantastic, and it looks great from a, you know, this program pro, project is invigorated. It's it's got some excitement around it, and that's all very positive. Um, one of the ways that you can interpret that is, well, and I suspect a lot of people do interpret that when we go out there and talk about how great the project is because it's so it's so invigorated, is that we've got all these people just sitting around churning code and just doing all this stuff. It's probably easy to to suspect from that that we're more internal focused. We're focused on what we can get done and the th- cool things we can do with Node rather than thinking about the users. But it's not true, is it? We have a really strong user focus, and I see that growing over time. Uh, do you want to talk to that? So I think what, what would be a really interesting way to look at that would be in a lot of the change logs that I do for LTS, I'll include a count of how many commits are affecting certain subsystems. More often than not, on most LTS releases, more than 60% of the commits are against docs and tests. And I think that is like the primary focus that, that people should think about. I think a lot of the churn that we're actually th- seeing is on stuff that either A, is like just legitimately increasing stability. It's not us just like moving bits for the sake of moving bits. Or B, is like in the documentation. Now, I think Code and Learn is maybe an interesting example here where we can talk about churn for the sake of churn. So we we ran a Code and Learn yesterday where we bring people in and help them get their first commit on the on the platform. Over 150, I think it was. My email box is was like 600 emails after yesterday. A majority of those commits are kind of churny commits, like changing from var to const. Now, I mean, albeit if we step back for a second. When we talk about the move between specific versions in the same way that going from 10 to 4 was a huge jump, the move from ES5 to ES6 was a massive jump, and I don't see the same like level of jump happening in future language specs now that they're iterating the way that they are. But there's a lot of churny things going on to kind of like be more ES6 compliant or, or use these ES6 features. Now, we, we talked about this uh, at dinner last night around the cost of churn. And in general, there's a high cost to active churn in the sense, like especially when we're doing LTS, that these deltas change. You have all these extra commits. It makes, you know, the process of doing like a git bisect longer. It makes the blames harder to read into and the actual maintenance of the repo higher. But I look at something like code and learn and maybe some of these other churny commits that come in from people who are newer to the project that the empowerment that people feel 
and the excitement that people feel from being able to get a commit into a project like Node, I think it's often worth it, at least yeah, for there, one there's commit. There's a trade-off there, isn't there? Because, because we, we often object to churn for churn's sake, but there is a trade-off that sometimes that can lead to investment by users. So yeah, we had, we had 160 people, some odd like that, a potential 160 new contributors yesterday. This is like arguably as much as like, you know, 10 to 15% more contributors than we've ever had on the project that literally just submitted commits yesterday. That's pretty massive. If even one of those people can be someone who comes in as a subject matter expert on core or even just by, by starting on core can move into things like a new installer or our website or our docs, I think that the cost of that churn is worth it. And, and but back to the topic of there's so much activity going on, but it's deceptive. It, like you, natural um, interpretation is that there's just you know there's all these people just want to change change node, and I don't want node to change so much. I, I think if I was on the outside, I would look at it and be very hesitant at a positive interpretation there. But we really do have a, a strong culture of user focus, don't we? And I I mm. see this as well. This is a fascinating process when people go from contributors to they become collaborators and part of that collaborator group where they have some responsibility and then even up to becoming a member of the CTC. I have seen changes in individuals where they have gone from fairly fiery and they just want to make these changes because they're better for Node and we want Node to improve to then have it, suddenly they have all this responsibility and they, they feel the responsibility of this massive user base <laughs> and they're making different decisions because, oh, hang on, I'm signing off here on something that is going to possibly come back and bite me because it's going to impact millions of users. So mm. we do have a very strong culture of, of user focus, yeah. which I think is, is, you, know, you, re- you represent in your interests but also in your work in LTS. Absolutely. I mean, I do not think that there is any change that comes in that is potentially disruptive that is not taken extremely seriously by the collaborators on the project. And the amount of work and changes that are coming in when you see like a commit log with like 300 or 400 commits on a new version, as I was saying, the majority of those are going to be docs and test fixes. And the things that are going in and fixing stuff, they're like little bug edge cases. The stuff that is coming in that's disruptive tends to have a lot of conversation around it before a decision is made. And then even further, when it goes out, if it turns to be more disruptive than we thought, we have many cases that I can point to where we've been willing to revert on our decisions in order to you know, correct the mistake that we've made in the eyes of the community. Yeah, we have an example of that coming out this, this week in a release, I think. Mm-hmm. So um, there's some of the buffer deprecation stuff. Right, okay, so let's move on. And try and wrap this up a little bit. And so I was saying to you before that before we were talking that a lot of listeners to this program are people who are relatively new to Node, trying to get involved in the culture and understand it, but also trying to level up their Node expertise. Mm-hmm. So as somebody who's been doing Node for a while but and is deeply involved in Node culture and also Node as a core project, can you give any advice for younger or newer programmers for how to level up their skills? Do you have favorite resources, favorite ways of learning, books, anything like that that mm-hmm. you want to recommend? This is always a tricky question, so I'm sorry to spring it on you. I'll start with some like really, really like broad, almost like mantras to remember, and then we can get into specific resources. But but a few things that I always remind myself because it's important. The first one is you don't need to know everything in order to make a reasonable and meaningful contribution. Thinking that you'll ever understand everything is like it's a red herring. 
I don't think that there is anyone that contributes to the project who understands every section of the project. Streams itself, I don't think there's anyone who understands every single bit of streams. I could be, like, maybe Mateo or, or maybe Matias or something, but, like, there are a lot of black boxes, and there's a lot of ways in which you can contribute in meaningful ways without having to open them all up. And, like, further as an extension to that, it's, like, remember that, like, programming is going to be a process of constantly finding out things that you don't know. <laughs> yes, that's great. It's, it, it, is, it is turtles all the way down, uh, as the expression goes. But if, if, you, if you get anxiety by not knowing something, that is something that you are going to quickly have to come up with some way to deal with that anxiety. Because all you're ever doing is discovering new abstractions. And, like, you're never going to – maybe that's not a fair thing. I I'll, – I'll talk for myself – I'm never going to get to the point where I understand everything that's going on all the way down to the transistors in my computer. And that doesn't bother me. I'm constantly pushing the limits of my knowledge space and filling in gaps as necessary to accomplish what I need to accomplish or just because I think it's cool. Like I, for example, would love to learn a lot more about like Unix file descriptors. And like that's not necessarily something... I need to know to do my job, but I just think it's kind of cool. And like, it's one of those like little black magic things that I think will, will help me with my overall understanding of computer systems. Don't let that stress you out. Like you don't need to know everything building on that one more, one more step. And these are all kind of saying the same things in slightly different ways is one of the most important things that you can know is what you don't know. And to be honest about that, there, there is nothing to be ashamed of to not know something. Actually, in my opinion, the worst thing you can do as like a new developer is to like puff your chest up and pretend that you know everything. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Like 90% of what I'm doing in LTS is gatekeeping. I don't need to be a subject matter and expert in everything. What I need to know is enough to find the subject matter experts. And that's a really important thing. It's like knowing what you don't know I mean, that, that's like even just a life skill. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. It's very true. And, but particularly in programming, because there's so much to know, and none of us know all of it. <laughs> and even those that do know a lot of it tend to you know, not have many of the skills required to put all of it to maximum use. Yeah. So as far as learning and being more active and um, being able to have a good career, I think like one thing that I invested in in my career that has paid off in spades has been extremely deep knowledge of Git and version control systems. If you want to collaborate with other people, you need to understand Git, and you further need to understand Git flow and, and how things move between different branches. And holding that kind of stuff in your head can be kind of difficult. But, but one thing I've seen early developers do is, you know, you make a branch and you live in that branch for like three weeks and by the time you go to merge your branch back in to the main code base you end up stuck with like you know conflicts galore and all of a sudden you're spending as much time dealing with the conflicts as you are with your code itself you know like learning what the difference is between a rebase and a merge keeping your merges flowing in a single direction make huge differences and a lot of that is you know like communication but there's the git scm manual which is kind of dry but i mean as far as like technical documents go it's actually pretty good i really really suggest getting comfortable with git and not just like not just like the concepts but the command line tool as well git bisect learn git bisect git bisect is the most amazing thing 
that could ever come up, especially when there's bugs. And what Git bisect will do is it will allow you to use a binary search to hop between your Git history to find a commit that breaks a test. So if you have a test that can reliably fail for a, chain, for a regression that you're finding in your code, you can run Git bisect and a little script, and it will jump through everything. And, you know, in a matter of how, like, you know, to the, to the order end of how long it takes to, to run that test, you can go and find the one commit that broke everything. This is actually one of the really interesting things is you're, you're thinking about something like Node and, like, issues are coming in. You don't have to know the whole code base to figure out what broke or how to fix it. Like, all you need to do, do is be able to decipher what's broken enough to make a reproducible case. Use git bisect to find what broke, and then examine that to figure out how it broke, and then get that test to pass. These are just like really interesting ways to think about code, and it kind of leans towards also thinking about code as data. And it's not necessarily that the code base is like this huge thing you need to understand how everything's working in it. That's kind of one of the things that's cool about Git and the work that we're doing in LTS. We're not necessarily thinking about Node as this like system where you need to understand everything. It's like Node is this data structure and these changes on this data structure. And, you know, we can operate on this data structure. We can operate it on it, on it to build it. We can operate that's, on it to make changes. That is a fascinating way of looking at Node. And I, I appreciate how you can see that, that it's, it's, it's an abstract thing that we're trying to move from one state to another. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in that sense, it really is just data. And that's, uh, I'm trying to remember where I read that originally, but there was like some textbook or, or book on coding. It was probably about uh, some Lisp dialect, but it was like, um, this is especially true when you think about things like Browserify or Webpack or like when you're operating on ASTs. Like when you start thinking about your code as data, it really frees you to think about new ways of operating on it. With AST manipulations, it's really huge because all of a sudden you can start thinking about like, you know, when you when you're doing like compilation in C, when you're doing like you know inline inline compiling and stuff like that, it just completely changes the way you write your code and the way you think about your code. But now maybe I'm getting a little bit too <laughs> too too much on a tangent there. Well, okay, let's, let me let me bring it back then and and ask you about balance because you're somebody that has a fairly diverse set of interests that that intersect with technology but aren't just technology i mean you i know you do you make you still make music you do art how do you find balance both in your work but in your interaction with technology so that you can find that that fulfillment that you personally need or is that something that you're still trying to figure out well i mean to be to be frank since i entered the workforce i've been doing a lot less programming in my free time playing a lot more pinball. Um, but no, I, I've, I get a lot of satisfaction out of my day job, to be honest. You know, a lot of it came down to me, the kernel, as I've mentioned before, was like making things that allow people to make things. And I get a lot of joy out of that. And when I hear like NASA's using Node to monitor spacesuits, like I lose it. Like that's the coolest thing ever. And like I get more fulfillment out of that than I do out of even like my music and my art. I haven't really been making art since I left school. I think part of that may just be like a time commitment thing, but also like an interest thing. I'm just interested in these like massive waves of influence. And so I think I've managed to find a place where I, I, I hesitate to use the word prolific, but I will is like, I can be more prolific and have wider influence in what I'm doing with code than I can with my art. And it, it comes full circle. So like, when I did that installation, 
where I was first working with Node, there was a module called Node OSC that was terribly broken. It was originally written for like version 0.6 and it was completely broken on 0.8. And so I went through and fixed it. And at the time it was just like, it wasn't even an NPM module. Everyone was just dropping it into their code base. So I published it to NPM and I was so excited. I went to the Google group and I wrote into the the mailing list about my new module because that was how you would tell everyone back then. I've been maintaining that module ever since. And I recently, as recently as like two months ago, I had someone pose an issue saying that they were having like race conditions when they created a thousand versions of the object. And I was kind of like, here's a hack that you could do to fix this, but why do you, what are you using a thousand versions of this object for? And it turns out, as I was saying, OSC, Open Sound Control, is this kind of like standard for communication between uh, different art environments. This individual was using Node OSC to program the control of hundreds of lights in a stage production as part of this kind of like interactive art piece. So in a weird way, I'm still making art. It's just not my art. That's, that's beautiful. <laughs> And that is actually really beautiful because I, I, I appreciate it too. Part of my fulfillment comes from knowing the impact that I have downstream. So the work on core now and previously with other things, knowing that the, that goes flows on to people who build products, people who do all sorts of things and have an impact on the world. So that's my way of having impact. So it sounds mm-hmm. like you're very similar. So let's finish up. My last question is for people thinking about where they're taking their career, where they're taking their, part, their learning path, Let's be do a bit of futurism here and see if you can come up with some ideas about what you think is going to be important in tech over the next 10, 20 years. What are the emerging trends and where are the technologies going that the interesting technologies that people should focus on understanding? Hmm. 20 years is a hard one. I mean, if we go 20 years back, like what, what was around 20 years ago that even like starts to look anything like what That's we true. had today? Okay. Let's um, shorten the time frame. Then. Yeah, so for, for 10 years though, I mean like, you know, Python's about 10 years old. Uh, Node is, how old is Node? Node's like... It's 2009, so seven years. Seven years old. Okay, so that that seems a little bit more reasonable. I think, you know, even though images and containerism existed in Linux for a long time before Docker, I think Docker pasted over it with an API that made it a lot more consumable. I think we're going to see a lot more movement away from kind of like bespoke huge systems that are running everything to kind of like smaller containers that are specific to like what you need to do. I think that fits very well with like kind of the Node ethos and the Unix ethos in a way of kind of like doing one thing very well. Tools like Kubernetes that then allow, you know, these small containered runtimes to, you know, be scaled is really important. Cloud technology that's used to run this. I see a lot of that kind of stuff happening. There's a lot of people talking about natural language and AI and machine learning. I don't have an expertise in that area, but I, I definitely can see, you know, where that leads to a lot more, you know, interesting stuff, especially like self-writing code or like, you know, not having to write as much stuff and having a lot more of this stuff kind of like develop itself. VR is an interesting technology that I'd be interested in seeing where that goes. Maybe a fad may not be a fad. That one's good. Yeah, I find that one hard to predict. <laughs> like, I think in general, I mean, just to be honest with you, I, I have no idea. Like, I think things have been moving so fast and at such a pace that I can have hopes for the future, but I just have no clue. I hope 
that it's more open standards and less proprietary. And I think that we're seeing that happen in the kind of technology that's being invested in. But you know what? I'll just make a prediction of what I want. I want, you know, open technology and JavaScript everywhere. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. So to finish off, what we do in, in NodeUp is, is do some plugs. I'm sorry I didn't prep you on this, but while I talk, I'll give you the chance to think about it. So this is plugging things that aren't even necessarily technology-related, just just a final thought that you can share with people. Maybe it's a, a book you're reading or a game you're playing or a, a thing that you, uh, that you really want to share with everyone. But do you have a, a thought for a plug that you can give to our listeners, something that mm. they can look up or, or buy or download or play with? That's an interesting one. Well, okay, let, let, let me do my plug while you think about yours. <laughs> so I've been plugging books uh, a little bit, and I'm going to plug one. It's actually a series. that. So I put out a call on Twitter a while ago asking for recommendations on character-driven sci-fi books because I, I like sci-fi, but I hate it. I hate sci-fi that doesn't have strong characters and doesn't give me that sense of connection. So I got some great recommendations, and one of the best was this series that I've seen but not actually had a look at yet, is the, the series is called The Expanse. It's by an author called James A. Corrie, and the first book is Leviathan Wakes. I think there's five books in the series so far, and I'm not sure if there's going to be more. I'm, I'm three books in at the moment, but in terms of being character-driven, it's fantastic. Some of the ideas are just fantastically... The breadth of the, the ideas is just so good. So I, the writing is fantastic too, so I can strongly recommend that. Also, it turns out that there's a, a series on Netflix that is based on this book. I haven't had a look at it, so I don't know. I can't recommend that. It's called The Expanse as well. So that's my plug. It's called The, Ex- the Expanse series, and the first book is Leviathan Wakes. Do you have a plug for us now, Miles? Okay. I, I think I have one that I'll be comfortable with. I got really hooked on this cartoon series recently called Steven Universe. It is fantastic. It's... It remains heartfelt, but also embedded with all sorts of, like, really, really difficult questions and and stuff that's, like, way deeper than you would expect from a children's uh, show. A lot of stuff about, like, sexuality and gender identity without, like, exactly saying it. Another plug that I'd like to do is, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen any Louis Theroux documentaries, but just watch everything he's ever done. <laughs> what, what is it about him that you, like... Louis does all of these documentaries where he kind of goes to the fringe of society and goes and talks to people who are, you know, he does one where he meets with swingers, he does one where he goes to like a max security prison, he does one, he recently did a a movie on Scientology, he did one actually on people who are in long-term relationships or married to individuals with autism, one on uh, alcoholism. And he goes and interviews these people from these communities or from these kind of subsections of society, you know, like stays with them, talks with them. But what he does, which is particularly interesting to me, is he, he doesn't hold back. He asks the hard questions. He did one on like, on like Nazis where he like went in and like literally asked them how they can hate. And like, you know, the kind of things that you would be scared to get in someone's face and ask, or if you're, you know, a person of polite society, you would never actually say to someone. And he asks all those questions. And you get an interesting insight into kind of like these parts of societies that we maybe kind of like skip over and then further also would never ask these questions and gives you a good look into like why people do this and to the point where he can make his subjects extremely uncomfortable or even like put himself maybe into danger 
But it's just like, I mean, it's honest to a fault, which I have a lot of respect for. That's a great plug. Okay, cool. I don't know if I've seen any of your stuff, so I'm going to have to look him up. So that's fantastic. Thanks very much for being on the show, Miles. This has been a really, really great talk, and I think people really enjoy this. And thanks, listeners, for bearing with me with my with my cold. But when you see Miles around or see him online, thank him for the work that he does on LTS. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> so, anyway, till next time. That's all for Note Up now. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for your time. I really appreciate it. <laughs>